Welcome to A Journey Shared, hosted by Naomi Huang. It's interesting how our perspective on a situation can grow and mature as we do. What seemed very black and white through a child's eyes slowly builds in areas of grey as our adult minds fill in the gaps with new information and nuances. In this episode, I'll be sharing my situation and outlook as a child, how this shaped my life to come, and obstacles I face that I hoped would be resolved by now. Are you ready? Let's go. It's the 90s in Wales, UK, and the area I grew up in consisted of, as far as we were aware, two Far Eastern Asian households. We were the Huang family, they were the Lu family. Throughout all of primary school and most of high school, that was it. There were a mix of other races too, such as Eastern Asian, Black and white communities, but we grew up in an environment where we were the minority of the minorities. This, in turn, had a profound effect on how I saw myself during my formative years. Or rather, didn't see myself. You see, it always confused me how kids would ask about or mock me for my flat nose, darker skin, or surname they couldn't pronounce. As far as I could tell... I was white. Why? Because that's mostly all I saw. In school, in the community, on TV. I knew I wasn't black or Middle Eastern because my skin wasn't dark enough. So childhood me genuinely assumed I was white. This may seem odd to you, especially if you're not an ethnic minority in the West. And you may even think, oh, what does it matter? And if you do, then chances are, race probably didn't affect your life as much as it did mine or other ethnic minorities. The thing is, a lot of your learning as a child is based on what you see. If you don't see people like you anywhere, then it's almost as if that option doesn't exist. This is why representation is so important, especially in the media, which can influence your ideas on what jobs are available to you, what behaviours or traits are attached to your race, or even your perception of beauty and whether society accepts you. Or not. Until we have more diverse writers, directors, journalists, CEOs, the list goes on, chances are we'll keep seeing inaccurate and often harmful visions of cultures that further deepen our misunderstanding of them. This is really important. What we consume is pervasive, not just to our own lives, but those around us. Tropes that fixate on stereotypes instead of building truthful characters can affect how people perceive cultures different to their own. That is why I started this podcast to add my voice in hope that people will learn from it. I mention this because it's really confusing to grow up with. 
You don't know why strangers on the street are shouting or throwing things at you, or why you're overlooked in conversations or opportunities, or why people even treat you differently at all. I didn't see race, but people around me, especially adults, did. And they usually did so negatively. Too much of this can inevitably impact one's self-esteem. I don't think I developed an inferiority complex, but it's understandable how it happens. When your very being, something you can't choose or control, is questioned and criticised so frequently. When I was four, I decided, quite clearly, that I'd pursue a career in art over music, as it was a skill I could learn by myself. My dream was to become a classical pianist, but I knew that would involve things like access to lessons, instruments, books, and travelling to and from lessons or concerts. I'm the youngest of four, and my parents worked around the clock to keep a roof over our heads and food on the table. I'm sure they would have accommodated for me, but given that my other siblings didn't have formal activities outside of school, I didn't think it would be fair to request one. We grew up with a message to treat each other equally, which was often explained with food. If, say, you're in a group and you don't have enough treats to share with everyone, don't bring them out, in case people who are left out feel sad. I didn't want to upset the balance within the family, and figured a more peaceful route would be to become an artist. Of course, my parents don't know this, but it's too late now anyway. Looking back, it's interesting how four-year-old me was already aware of privilege and whether this applied to me or not. Don't get me wrong, we were doing fine in the grand scheme of things. We had enough food, bills were paid, and we were usually the first in our friendship groups to have the latest computer or gaming console but there are other aspects of privilege that have an impact on a family. Time, for example. Being joint business owners, my parents worked day and night at their takeaway, and with their limited education and grasp of English, weren't able to help me with schoolwork. I didn't mind this, feeling it was my responsibility to do homework solo, though it would sometimes irk me when letters or documents came into the equation. Children like me didn't have the luxury to be completely carefree. We had to learn how to fill our own forms or write our own letters from a young age. Again, this did help me level up in being independent, but I remember feeling annoyed at the time, having to do this grown-up stuff by myself whilst my friends with English-speaking parents could carry on playing. Being raised in an underprivileged area, rife with crime, meant I spent most of my time indoors. Being the youngest, and a girl no less, meant that people were even more protective of me. Unable to play at the park with kids my age, Instead, I filled my days with drawing and making things at my tiny art desk in the living room. Hours were spent doodling, painting, sculpting or sewing. I wasn't unhappy during this time, 
though I know now that what I lacked back then was affection. Asian culture isn't as touchy-feely or as open as the West. We don't talk about our emotions. In fact, it was taboo to let out any sign of weakness. This later fed into shame over my dyslexia, which went undiagnosed into my mid-twenties. And I'll discuss this in more detail in later episodes. These issues, mixed with large age gaps between my siblings and I, and parents working almost every day, meant I often felt ignored or even unloved during a lot of my childhood. Of course, I wasn't actually unloved. I just perceived it that way, because my love languages didn't line up with those of my family. If you haven't heard the term before or need refreshing, the five love languages are ways people like to give or receive affection. It was coined by Dr. Gary Chapman in his book of the same title, and has since helped make sense of the relationships around us. The five types are words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and physical touch. Words of affirmation refer to compliments or verbal encouragement. Acts of service can be things like doing the dishes, washing the car, or fixing something that's broken. Anything that would lift a burden for the other person. Receiving gifts places importance on material goods that have sentimental value or show that they were thinking of you. Quality time involves being fully with you in the present moment, not distracted by calls, work or things that would otherwise make a person feel less important. Finally, physical touch builds connection using our bodies, not always explicitly, A simple hug or a pat on the back can be enough for some. There are questionnaires online to help you discover which way you lean and I'll link them in the show notes. You may find that yours change depending on your relationship with the other person. For example, physical touch, acts of service and quality time rank high for my partner and I but I don't appreciate the first two quite as much outside of close or romantic relationships. Instead, referring quality time or words of affirmation. Neither of us care for receiving gifts, scoring a stone-cold zero, which made sense in why that was always a sticking point in my last relationship. Anyway, I digress. The point is, people express affection in ways that make sense to them, and like to receive affection in ways that make them feel good. When these don't align and there isn't enough communication or understanding between parties, it can cause conflict or even feelings of neglect. In my family, we predominantly show our affection through acts of service, because that's what my parents did. Nowadays, that translates to cooking for each other, buying useful tools or giving handmade goods such as soap or chutneys. This is something I appreciate now in my 30s, but as a child, it is the least recognisable love language. Why? Because it's a given. Being fed is a given, and you have no autonomy to get anything yourself until many years later. 
with everyone busy living their own lives, the lack of quality time, and culturally rooted reluctance to offer physical touch left me feeling unwanted. I think having terminology for these things really help understand and accept such concepts, which otherwise float abstractly in our minds. An angle I hadn't considered until discussing this with my partner, San, who was born and raised in Indonesia before moving to the UK as a young teenager. Is my sadness revolving this a form of FOMO? FOMO meaning fear of missing out. Having experienced the East and West cultures separately and in their entirety, not simultaneously like I did, he noticed that the only time he felt dissatisfaction was when comparing his situation here with what he'd been used to and didn't bother him previously. An example would be schoolwork. Let me tell you now that school in Asia is very, very different. It's almost like a job. Kids wake up 5, 6am, commute long distances and frankly learn and progress at more advanced stages than here in the UK. In Vietnam, school wasn't, and still isn't, free. It has to be paid for, which resulted in my parents only finishing a few years of primary school between them. For poor families such as theirs, the harsh reality is that working to earn money to eat and survive another day is of higher priority than getting an education. People in developed countries really, really take free education for granted. Despite their limited time in school, I recall doing my maths homework, age 14, in front of my mum. She recognised the equation, but had a completely different method of reaching the same answer. I was in top set in all of my classes and consistently got good grades, yet my homework in the UK at age 14, was covered by primary school kids in Vietnam. Back to Zen. His school hours from age 5 to 13 were between 7am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, plus homework, with half a day on Saturdays. And that was that. That was his life and he didn't know any different, so it didn't bother him. He actually commends it for preparing him for regular working life here, as he'd already been conditioned for it. It was only until a few years ago, when I met his parents for the first time, did he discover that they'd actually sent him to school plus. Normal school kids studied from 7am to 2pm, then spent the rest of the day playing. Zan, bless him, was unknowingly sent to school plus, where he had had a further three hours of study, plus an occasional two hours of private tutoring in the evenings. When he found out, the look on his face was priceless. Even so, he's still grateful for the solid foundation that school system gave him, and is doing exceptionally well here. Being ahead two years on arrival to the UK meant he had time to focus on learning English, and making friends. He's honestly the only person I know who enjoyed their time in high school. I didn't think that was possible, but apparently it is.
My point here is, he was content with that school life and didn't complain because it was the norm. It wasn't until he came here and saw how easy people had it that he started to feel annoyed by what he had to deal with. The same goes for affection within the family. He grew up with the same dynamics I did, but didn't have other cultures to compare to and therefore didn't feel FOMO from lack of cuddles or conversations. I don't think this makes mine or anyone else's needs less valid, but it's an interesting point I wouldn't have known had we not shared our different perspectives. What do you think? Can you recognise this in aspects of your life? When I was six, I travelled to Vietnam with my mum and middle sister. It was my first trip abroad, and already one for heights, I loved flying and seeing the fluffy clouds pass by. A friendly stewardess gave me an elephant plushie for comfort, and I was happy in the simple, innocent way many children are. I don't remember much of the trip, only snippets, such as the hot sun, the kind people, and untouched nature. My sister and I, born and raised in rainy Wales, weren't used to Vietnam's tropical climate and spent an afternoon crying from heat stroke. The building we stayed in was tall and made of concrete, with open, glassless windows. I enjoyed sitting on them, dangling my feet outside, several stories up and observing the stripy awnings of market stalls below. At least until my mum spotted this blatant safety hazard and forbade me from doing it again. When the grown-ups were away, my cousin and I would run to the top of the building, grip the inner edges of the decorative roof and drop to the balcony below, over and over again. For someone who wasn't allowed outside and had never climbed a tree, this was an exhilarating change of pace. Once, when trying to reach high up for a pretty flower, my older cousin spotted my troubles and deftly carried me to it. Content with that alone, I was in for a greater surprise as he continued to carry me up the hill and towards a cliff edge, which revealed an expanse of mountains and lakes with a purpley hue of twilight. Never had I seen such a sight. And, ever the daredevil, I peered over the edge to see more, before being swept away again. My cousin, startled for my safety, quickly carried me down to the rest of the family. Despite my 30-something years on this planet so far, I haven't done a great deal of travelling, my priorities always being more immediate. Get good grades, get a degree, get a job, save for a house. Having only been to Asia until my mid-twenties, I had a distorted view on the cost and effort of travelling. Assuming it would always require thousands of pounds and half a day of flying, never thinking to actually check for closer opportunities. The person I was with during my twenties had been there, done that, only wanted to travel and live comfortably and didn't seem all that bothered to share new experiences with me not feeling confident enough to go alone or ask others, I stayed put and carried on working. 
Despite this, I'd been fortunate enough to at least meet or work with people from all around the world. And once you've at least done that, you start to recognise when others haven't. Travelling to different places and meeting people from different cultures is a humbling eye-opener. I wish more people would see value in this instead of brushing it off as an impossibility or simply unimportant. Ignorance feeds nastiness such as racism. And given how globalised the world is today with access to the internet and stories like this, there really is no excuse for it. A few years later, a pivotal moment happened. The release of Final Fantasy VII. A Japanese RPG for the PlayStation. RPG meaning role-playing game. It's like an interactive book or film where you control the character and actively make your way through the storyline. I was nine at the time and entranced by the film-like qualities of the game. Looking at it now, we see the figures as the blocky shapes they are. But back then, it was the height of computer graphics and our minds filled in the gaps to see the immense worlds the artists had created for us. It was then I realised, yes, I want to do this. I want to draw characters and worlds for people to escape into. From then on, I became obsessed with copying characters from games and animes the best I could, as well as design my own. I should explain at this point that I'm the youngest of four, and when I was in my mum's belly, my brother really, really wanted a little brother. I ended up a girl, leaving him with three sisters and no more chances for said brother. So, he raised me as one. We were close, and through him I learned how to use and hook up computers from a young age, was painting digitally during primary school and building websites in high school. This during a time when it was still seen as a boy's world, and other girls and women couldn't fathom why I wanted to make games for a living, or even knew the option existed. Expectations based on gender really bothered me, even as a child. Adults would speak at, not to me, with a very fixed idea of what my life as a girl was to become. As far as they were concerned, I'd grow up, not necessarily with a degree, get married, have kids. And that's when they'd stop. I found this odd and couldn't make sense of it. So much so that the more it was spouted at me, the more I wanted to rebel. From then on, I sworn off marriage or ever having kids, not wanting to do what was expected or predicted of me. I would decide for myself. And the more I could throw a curveball at them, the more gleeful I felt about it. These decisions I'd made as a child to become an artist as a more affordable alternative to music, to make games that would help others escape into magical worlds I appreciated as a lonely, homebound child, and to avoid gender-based expectations such as getting married and having children purely out of spite. 
These decisions became my compass in the years to come, and I was determined to make it there. You've been listening to A Journey Shared, hosted by Naomi Huang, with music by Yaisa Verona. Links to our work and references mentioned can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining me today. Take care.